We begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your blessings in our life. And as we come together as a body to worship you by looking at your word, we pray that we would be submissive to it. We pray that our hearts would be open, our minds would be open, that we would compare ourselves to the text that you have placed before us today and that we would be yielded to the work of your Spirit in our life. We pray that you would glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Titus 2. So if you want to go ahead and find that in your Bibles, that will give us a head start. When you have two opportunities to preach the same sermon, there's the likelihood of the second opportunity being dramatically shorter or longer. (laughs) Because you remember everything you want to say, or you remember everything that you wish you hadn't said. Before we get into our text of scripture, I just want to give you an update on Appalachian Bible College. We are thankful for your support of us as we serve there at ABC. Um, Three blessings that we have seen here real recently at ABC are the pavilion, which there was a group of guys who came down from this church who participated and helping with the construction of that building, sort of a pole barn construction, and then on both ends there was an additional room attached. Uh, One room is the kitchen area and the other room is restrooms. And the group that came down from FBC worked on the restroom uh, end of things. And the block wall had already been constructed, but everything from the, the uh, top of that block wall up to the roof, they put on. And they got the shell uh, completed and closed in, and a great amount of work was done. Work that uh, we on campus couldn't possibly have completed. And so we are thankful for your support in that area. Another blessing that we have uh, benefited from this year is a new coach bus. And this is a, without giving too many details, is a 28 passenger bus, our old bus. They called it Barnabas. Uh, I don't know who came up with that, but uh, it died. And. Uh, Matter of fact, if you are interested in a dead coach bus, see me after the service. We can do something about that. Um, You guys that are hunting, it'd be great. You could turn it into a hunting cabin, just park it. (laughs) But the Lord provided this other coach bus for us. This was sort of out of the blue. A contact of the school said, this is available and... Uh, it was the Lord just worked it out that we had it for our jubilate, our handbell uh, group earlier in the uh, year, May, at the, at the beginning of uh, May is when they toured. They were able to take this bus and it is uh, a great tool to use. 
The uh, final blessing I just want to highlight that we have received from the Lord just really this summer is the roof on the men's dorm. Uh, the men's dorm, McCarroll Hall, as you see it in the uh, picture here, the uh, before picture of that is a flat roof on that building. And uh, with a flat roof, when it starts to wear out, you, you, know, you can imagine things happen, water comes in, it's not a good uh, situation to be in. And so we needed to put a new roof on this building, and it needed to fit in with the rest of campus. And the Lord provided all of the materials for that building. The school has not had to pay anything towards the materials on that building. Most of the work has been donated. In fact, the guy who is supervising that job is retired from school system in Florida where he was the supervisor of the maintenance for this school system. Found out that we had this need and he and his wife came up to have an RV parked it on campus, and basically said he would be there to help run this project for as long as it took. And uh, so a great blessing from uh, the Lord. So I just want you to see what your support of us at Appalachian Bible College is accomplishing as far as just the material aspect of it. But also you should know that we are expecting almost as many new students this year as we had last year, and last year was a record-breaking year. We had, I think I'm right on this, we had more new students last year than uh, we have ever had in our history. This year we're pretty close to that, and so we're th- very thankful to the Lord. So your prayer support in, those, in that area especially is seen. I would ask you to remember two things in prayer as you think about uh, ABC and the hand shoes. Number one, we have a number of new faculty who are now just coming on and uh, school starts August 28th. They're starting August 1, school starts August 28th. There is a lot for them to do and just get adjusted to as they shift ministries. There's people coming from other ministries who are now going to be a part of our team at ABC. Pray for them. So when when you think of ABC, just pray for the faculty. God will know what you mean. Also, we are preparing for a, uh, a visit from our creditors to make sure that we are doing everything we need to do academically. And this is a is a huge deal. It takes about two years of preparation for this visit and people from other institutions within our, uh, the, the accrediting body will come and they will critique us. And so it's, a really, it's really important that we get the work done. Not that we're perfect, but that we get what we need to uh, get accomplished uh, done and that we're prepared for that and um, that that whole process runs smoothly. So you can pray for me, especially about that. I'm in charge of that, so if that doesn't happen just right, I get blamed. <laughs> so be in prayer for me when it comes to the accreditation. And if the only thing you can remember is ABC Dan Hanshu, pray that and the Lord knows. 
Okay, I have, I'm, I'm confident in that. Um, I just want to update you on our family. Um, my wife Elizabeth is here in this service. And uh, I won't have her stand up because she'll kill me if I did that. And Charlie and James are with her. Charlie is our oldest. He's going into kindergarten. James is next. He's gone into... Did I say you were going into kindergarten? Charlie's going into first grade. Um, James is going into kindergarten. And our two girls, Evelyn, who's three, and Susanna, who's 18 months, 20 months, somewhere... <laughs> Roughly, you start losing number four, that doesn't become as important. Uh, They are where they need to be being taken care of by somebody else. And uh, so we have a busy house, and uh, you can pray about that too. Just uh, surviving and still maintaining all of our mental capacities. So if you, if you would like more information about ABC, please visit our uh, website, www.abc.edu. It ha- would have all of your information on there. Um, and if you have more questions, you can feel free to uh, call the phone number provided or even the email address. You can send a question via email. Let me just give you a quick rundown of what we do at ABC. Maybe some of you are familiar uh, some of you are partially familiar. Some of you maybe don't have any idea what we do at Appalachian Bible College. Well, we have a bachelor's degree that we offer, and the majors that we offer within that degree are pastoral, youth and family, youth and family with a counseling concentration, uh, music, missions, camping, interdisciplinary, and elementary education. That, those are all four year degrees. We also offer a one-year Bible certificate and a two-year Associate of Arts. And then we also offer a graduate degree, a Master's of Arts in Ministry that is very flexible. Um, For those of you who can't just quit your job and sell your house and move down to Beckley, we do offer our Bible certificate online. And so you get the same education that a resident student would get via the Internet. And it it is a valuable resource. We are working to expand that to even include our Associate of Arts degree. We're trying to get that degree online as well. Now, for those of you who can't move to Beckley... And you're really not into taking online classes, and I can understand that. As Pastor Everett mentioned this morning, you have EBI here. Those are classes that come under Appalachian Bible College. And what that means is that those are classes that are accredited. So your, tra- your credits will transfer to different schools. And, and by the way, just a point of information, you might not know this, But our regional accreditation is the same regional accreditation that Shepherd University has, or WVU, or the University of Chicago. I'll try to name a couple big ones out there. Our our accrediting agency covers schools from West Virginia all the way to Arizona. So you think of any big school 
across the northern part of our nation, we have the same accreditation that they have. And so if a course will fit within their uh, program, you can transfer it in there and they will accept it. And so that's a great blessing that we have. And uh, by the way, that's what you need to pray about that I'm working on. Also, along with EBI, you, you might... I, I don't know if this has ever been mentioned, but uh, Elizabeth, my wife, is the niece of Jim and Martha Shoopy. And so there's a connection there. So if anybody's taken any of his classes, you, she actually took classes from him when she was in Bible college. So if you're going to take any of his classes, you might want to talk to her about what he expects. And I just want to, again, say how important a Bible college education is and what a great ministry it is for you as a church to support a school like ABC. Bible college is important. It's not important because it gives you skills to make a living when you graduate. It's important because it lays a foundation in your life and in your mind so that you can think about things biblically. You can think about things according to what the Word of God says, and that is important. So Bible college is worth the support of you here as a church, both financially and prayer. Prayer is a huge need for our Bible college. And I would, I would encourage you to put us on a weekly prayer list. Daily would be best, but a weekly prayer list that you would pray for Appalachian Bible College. It is an investment that is worth all the effort that we can give it. One of the things that happens in Bible college is that Bible college grounds our students in proper doctrine. Proper doctrine is very important. I just had a conversation here recently with someone about their church, and they had a concern about their church because they had heard the church leadership say that it was unacceptable for anyone to hold one particular doctoral position too dogmatically. Don't hold this position so firmly. We don't, we don't want to say this is where we stand and this is what we believe in. That's basically what the leadership uh, was saying. And in a situation like this, when a church becomes wishy-washy on doctrine, sooner or later... The thing that will be compromised in the end will be the gospel. In other words, they won't still preach the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again and that you need to trust in Him for salvation. That won't, they'll compromise on that. Church will become a social uh, meeting and that's it. Doctrine is important and we need to be clear in our minds that we should hold doctrine. This morning I want to take a brief look at Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and we're going to see this issue of doctrinal basis for our behavior. 
the doctrinal basis for our behavior. And what I want you to understand is that before you can do right, you have to know right. Got that? So the first thing you have to do is to know right. I mean, this is pretty simple. It's pretty basic. It's really just common sense. Before you can do the thing you're supposed to do, you've got to know what you're supposed to do, right? You can't obey, you can't be obedient, you can't be good if you don't know what good is. Translate this to church world, Bible world. You have to know doctrine before you can be pleasing to God. You have to know doctrine. And it might just be... This is what Jesus wants for me to do for salvation. It might be for children, obey your parents. It might be for husbands, love your wife. It might be for a wife, submit to your husband. It might be that simple, but that's doctrine. By the way, doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching or instruction. So this morning, I want us to see that the basis for our right behavior is right doctrine. And I have five points. Five points. So at the end, if you have six points or four points, either you were getting a little bit more from the Spirit than I intended or a little bit less. Okay? Five points. First, first point here in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, we see that there are certain behaviors that come out of sound doctrine. Behaviors that come out of sound doctrine. In verse 1, we see that behavioral, the behavioral instructions here agree with proper or sound doctrine. The verse says, But as for you, that's Titus, teach what accords or is in agreement with sound healthy, proper doctrine. So what Paul is telling Titus is that as he is interacting with the church at Crete, he is to tell them, teach them things that agree with the doctrine that he knows, with the doctrine that Paul has passed on to Titus. He is to exhort them in their behavior that they follow along. And notice in verses 2 through 10 that there are five categories of people that Titus is to address. Verse 2, we see older men. I'm not going to read these uh, verses here. You can go back and cover those later. Um, My emphasis is on the second part of the chapter. But we see... Five categories of people. The first is older men, verse 2. The second is older women, verses 3 through 5. The third is younger women, verses 4 through 5. And you'll notice, if you're paying attention to that, those verse numbers, that there's an overlap there between the older women and the younger women. The overlap there is because the older women are to teach the younger women. Titus isn't to teach the younger women. The older women are to teach the younger women. And so part of the proper behavior of an older woman in the Lord is to teach the young women. Then the fourth category is younger men, verses 6 through 8. And we see here in verses 7 through 8 that the method that Titus is to use in teaching 
these young men as by his example. Then finally, the fifth category is slaves, or maybe your version says bond servants, verses 9 through 10. So there are the five categories of people, and all you have to do is read down through your text and you'll pick those out right away. But it is the, the behaviors that Titus is exhorting these people to do, these behaviors come out of or agree with sound doctrine. Point two, in verse 11, we see the basis for proper behavior. This basis is the saving grace of God. Notice what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Now, I would like to make a slight adjustment to that translation and put it like this, restate it. For the saving grace of God was revealed for all men. You might say in your mind, what's the difference between what you just read and what I have in the Bible in front of me? The answer to that is really there's not too much difference at all, but it helps me justify my seminary education and student loan debt. Okay? Makes me feel good about uh, retranslating something. So that's the only reason I gave that. However, I will repeat the phrase saving grace over and over again. But we notice the first word in this verse is the word for. Small word, three letters. But this word connects verses 1 through 10 with the following verses. And it's saying to us, because of this, 1, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9, 10, because of these, ad, or I should say, you have these admonitions to certain behavior because of the saving grace of God. And so we see there's this connection here, and it basically tells us what causes, what is the reason behind behaving a certain way. And what we see and the very next words in this verse is, The saving grace of God appeared or was revealed for or to all men. This is talking about the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, the foundational doctrine for our behavior as Christians in this passage is that Jesus Christ was sent from the Father to come to earth to pay the penalty for our sins to provide salvation to man. This is the greatest expression of grace ever. And there will be no greater expression of grace. This is the most gracious act that anyone could ever accomplish. And so we see that these admonitions in verses 1 through 10 for proper behavior for Christians are based upon the fact that the saving grace of God has appeared. It happened. It was a historical event. It is already accomplished. It has appeared for all men. 
This salvation that is offered through God's grace is for everyone. And so as verse 11 sort of summarizes the basis for why we should behave the way we're we're indicated that we ought to behave in verses 1 through 10, we see that in verses 12 through 13, the third item I want you to notice how the saving grace of God leads us to proper behavior. So if the grace, the saving grace of God is the basis for our proper behavior, how does it do that? How does it accomplish that? Look at these verses. I'll just read them again, verses 12 and 13. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so how does the saving grace of God lead us, provide the basis for our proper behavior? The first thing we see in verse 12 is that it trains us. The very fact that God intervened into history in a gracious way, providing His Son for our salvation, the very fact that He did that should tell us something. It should train us something about something. It should tell us, number one, there's something going on in the world that God doesn't like, but that God is... Himself merciful and gracious in that He provides a way of our salvation. God has been offended and God has provided salvation. At a minimum, this gracious intervention of God into history by His Son, Jesus Christ, should tell us those things. And this training, it's not just ambiguous. This training goes on to say how we ought to live. So the saving grace of God coming into the world, even if that was by itself, without anything else, it would train us in certain things, but it doesn't stop there. It tells us more information in these verses, and it tells us how we ought to live. If you drop down halfway through verse 12, pick up the word and, and to live. It teaches us, it trains us how we are to live. And it tells us how we ought to live in three ways. It gives us three descriptions of our living. You see that right in your text. The first one is to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So this word self-controlled is the idea of uh, thinking properly. It's the idea of, it's almost like common sense, not, not not in the sense of, Uh, human common sense, but common sense according to what God wants and what God says. It's it's using uh, what God put between your ears type of thing. So self-controlled, and this is a key word in Titus, a key word in Titus, especially in the first two chapters. It occurs in chapter 1, verse 8. Then it occurs in chapter 2, verse 2, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and here in verse When a word occurs that much in such a short span of time, you can just mark it down as it's pretty important. Okay, Self-control. 
that's an important concept to understand in Titus here, and it, and it engages your mind. But we also ought to live uprightly, or this is the word righteously. And when we think of the word righteous, we should always think of standard. Because in order to live rightly, if I can put it like that, in order to live rightly, there has to be a standard by which you compare your living. And so there always has to be a standard. Um, when I was in the military, you had your standard operating procedure. That guided you and directed you. If something wrong happened, they went back and said, did you follow the standard procedure? Um, if you're building something, what's the standard? It's your tape measure, right? You don't just say, oh, I'll guess it. It looks like it's 12 feet. No. You measure it. Well, some of you might guess that it's 12 feet, but you measure it. There is a standard. This is righteousness. And when we see righteousness used in the Bible, it's not just any generic standard. It is the righteousness of God. It is God's standard. So we are trained by the saving grace of God to live self-controlled lives, righteous lives, and godly lives. And the idea with this word godly here is devoted lives that are devoted and i think the idea being expressed is devoted to be pleasing to god and so this is what the saving grace of god trains us to live like which is fun we think about that and we say okay i know what i, I ought to be i know how i ought to behave i even know why i ought to do that because god intervene into the world in a saving way, and he offers salvation to me, a dirty, rotten sinner. And just by doing that, it teaches me that there is a, a sin problem, and it teaches me I need a solution that I can't provide myself, but God has provided it. I know all that, but how do I do that? How do I personally do that? How do I live a life pleasing to God? Well... Thankfully, we are told in this passage how to do that. Picking back up at the beginning at verse 12, we see how does living, like this passage describe, describes, how does living like this happen in our, my, your lives? Number one, it happens by renouncing and denying sin. Notice what it says, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Part of us living a life pleasing to God is renouncing and denying sin. And let's think about that a, a little bit. Before you can renounce sin, there's something else that has to happen. You have to recognize sin. You have to know what sin is. You have to know what sin looks like. Where do, we, where do we get the information that tells us what sin is? The Bible. I think that's what most of us would say. The Bible tells us what sin is. Again, it's setting out the standard. So we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that when we're faced with sin, we see it, and we say what God says about it. We call it sin. Now, 
in our culture, in our society, that's not that's taboo now. You don't do that. You don't call sin what God calls sin. You know, they're having a struggle. Um, you know, they're they're you know they're just having a difficult time. We don't say they're in sin when that's exactly what it is. When when we see what God calls sin, we should also call it sin. So we have to recognize it. We have to recognize sin, what sin is. The only way we're going to recognize what sin is is if we know our Bibles, to know what God calls sin. You can't leave it up to your intuition and your feelings to tell you what sin is. We have to know what God says it is. So that's part of it. Then the other part is we have to refuse sin. When, when you recognize sin, and uh, the, the uh, word in the Bible used for this is temptation. You recognize there's sin in life now. Now you're, you're confronted with this sin. We call that temptation. When you are tempted, you have a choice to make. You can choose to sin or you can choose not to sin. You can choose the wrong path or you can choose the right path. And so we are told as believers, because of the saving grace of God, what He has done, what God has done in providing Jesus to us as our Savior that we should deny sin. We should recognize what sin is and we should refuse sin. How else does uh, the living as we ought, how else does this happen in our lives? Renouncing sin. Secondly, we are to live waiting or expecting the return of Jesus. Look at verse 13 waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 11, we saw the the first coming, didn't we? In verse 13, we have the second coming. It's funny how these two comings of Jesus Christ relate to how we ought to live as believers today. We are to live as if Jesus could show up any time to rapture his church. And and I don't mean as if, like it's not a possibility. I mean understanding the fact that he could show up right now and rapture his church. We are to live with uh, with that in mind as we seek to be obedient to God. And I was and I was thinking about this. This could go in two directions. You could think about it personally and say... When the Lord returns, I don't want to be found involved in sin. So that's a challenge. That's a challenge. But we also want to think of it in terms of when the Lord returns, I want to be ready and that I've been living a life that has been a witness to those around me so that when He returns, I don't regret not speaking to somebody about my Savior. And so we need to be ready, we need to live our life in light of the fact that the Lord is coming back and He's going to rapture the church, and when He comes back, there's nothing else that you can do on this earth as far as uh, witnessing to your friends and loved ones. But we we also understand we want to find, we want ourselves to be found pleasing to the Lord when He returns. And so, 
My third point here was how the saving grace of God leads us to proper behavior. And it leads us to proper behavior through training us how to live. And it it lets us know how this happens in our life by renouncing sin and living in light of the fact that the Lord's returning. And when you think about that, especially that last part I just talked about, that puts a tremendous amount of pressure on you because now you have to recognize sin and you have to refuse sin. That's pressure. That's pressure on you to do that because what happens when I don't see sin or I'm just ignorant that this is what the Lord says about sin or what happens when I give in to temptation and I don't refuse sin? Sin. What happens? Well, the fact of the matter is, if we are left to our own devices, and it's left up to us and our power to respond properly to God, we cannot do it. We can't do it. It's impossible for us to do. But I want you to notice in verse 14, especially the first part of the verse, the provision for behavior pleasing to God. We have a provision given to us to be pleasing to God. Notice what it says. Who, talking about Jesus Christ, gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. Stop. Jesus has made provision for us to live the Christian life. He has enabled us to live the Christian life. And he has done this in two ways according to this verse. Number one, it says that he redeemed us from all lawlessness. He redeemed us. And by the way, how he redeemed us is that he sacrificed his self um, for us. But he redeemed us. And this word redeemed has the idea of buy back from or or buy out of. And uh, Romans chapter 6 makes it very clear that before you were a believer, you were a slave to sin. You were under the control and the ownership of sin. That means that's what you did. You sinned. That's who you were. You were a sinner. You sinned. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, part of what took place supernaturally in your life is that God, because of the price that Jesus paid for your salvation, God bought you out of the ownership and control of sin. And now you're under the ownership and control of God. He bought you. He redeemed you. So that's part of this provision for proper behavior to God, is that we've been bought out. We do not have to sin anymore. I hope you recognize that as a believer, you do not have to sin. Sin does not control you. The second part is you you have been purified. Look what it says. Still in verse 14, picking up halfway through the verse with the word and, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So he redeemed and he purified, he cleansed. 
You know, if God, look at it this way, if God bought you out of the control and, and ownership of sin, you're still pretty dirty. You're still pretty dirty, so another process has to take place, a cleansing process. Sometimes we call that being born again, regeneration. These things go together with the idea of cleansing, of purifying us. And that purification means that we can stand before God and we can serve God. God can use us for His work here on earth. Living the Christian life is not something we can do on our own. It is something that God has enabled us to do through the work of Jesus Christ and that He redeemed us and He purified us. And finally, at the end of verse 14, we see the purpose of Jesus coming to die on the cross to save us from our sins We see the purpose in in His redemption of us and His purification of us. The end of the the passage. And to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Who are zealous for good works. Two things. Two things. If you are a believer, you belong to Jesus. A people for His own possession. Jesus possesses, you are a possession of Jesus. You don't get to do what you want to do. I know that rattles, you know, people who have libertarian tendencies. Less government. Don't like the government telling us what to do. If you are a Christian, you don't get to do what you want to do. You have to do what your Lord, Jesus, wants you to do. You are His. You are His possession. Secondly, the thing that He wants you to do is to be zealous for good works. He wants you to do good works. Now, I want you to notice that the end of this chapter connects all the way back up to the beginning of this chapter. The beginning of the chapter talks about good works, good behavior, good attitude, good thoughts. And it goes right down through this, why we should be this way. And the end of the chapter concludes by pointing right back up to what has uh, the, the beginning of the chapter started with good works. By the way, if you get bored on Sunday afternoon, why don't you read the letter to Titus a couple times and figure out how many times this term good work shows up. It's a key point in the book of Titus. And the point is, as a Christian, you need to do good works. And you need to get this straight in your mind. You need to get this paradigm straight. You do not do good works for salvation. Good works are not for Good works are not to get salvation. You do good works because of salvation. You are saved, therefore you do good works. Therefore you live a life pleasing to God. So let me conclude here. What we see in this passage is the fact that doctrine matters. The doctrine of the first coming. 
of Jesus Christ. The doctrine of His atoning work for us on the cross. The doctrine of sanctification. Even the doctrine of the second coming. And eschatology and future things. They are important for us. Most of all, the doctrine contained in this passage tells us how to be pleasing to God. And it also tells us how we are able to be pleasing to God. So doctrine matters, and learning doctrine matters. If doctrine matters, then knowing, training, and learning doctrine matters. And so the doctrine of this passage, first we have... God has graciously intervened in history by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to provide salvation for all. Doctrine number one, that's the first bit of doctrine any unbeliever is faced with, whether you're going to accept it or not. Number one, the doctrine of salvation. Secondly, this gracious intervention by God has a training effect that tells us We should not sin, but rather live pleasing to Him. This means the doctrine of of salvation has an effect on how we as Christians live our lives. We call that the doctrine of sanctification. Thirdly, we also see that living pleasing to God has been provided for By the work of Jesus Christ, He provides the means by which we can live pleasing to God. Without that little piece of doctrine in there, we would be a very unhappy and uh, downhearted people. And finally, we belong to Christ. We see in this passage, we belong to Christ and He wants us to be eager to do good works pleasing to God. Doctrine is... Important. Three challenges. Number one, how's your doctrine? Do you know what you ought to know? So let me answer that for you. Answer is no. You don't know what you ought to know. I don't know what I ought to know. Um, You haven't arrived. I haven't arrived. The Lord is teaching us, should be teaching us things every day. There is enough Uh, information in the Bible to occupy the rest of your life, no matter how young you are. You need to be increasing in your doctrine and your understanding of God's Word to you. But even if you're at a place in your doctrinal understanding and you're like, I got the biggies down. You know, I might not know every reference, but I got the concepts down. I'm solid To you the challenge is, does your behavior agree with the doctrine you ought to know? In other words, is your life pleasing to the Lord? Uh, How about your behavior towards your wife? Are you loving? Are you respecting? Are you submissive? How about your children? What about your relationship with your children? At work. Does your behavior agree with doctrine? Don't lie, don't steal. Be a good testimony before your co-workers. Be above reproach before your co-workers. 
How about when you are using your electronic device? Computer, smartphone, tablet, whatever it might be. How about then? Are you being pleasing to the Lord? Are you looking at what you shouldn't be looking at? Are you, are you sending messages to a person you shouldn't be communicating with? What about when you're around your unsaved friends? Are you a testimony to the salvation of Jesus Christ? Or did you fall back right into your old ways when you're around them? And you take part in some of the sinful things you used to take part in. What about then? Does your behavior agree with the doctrine you ought to know? And let me just challenge you with this last thought that if doctrine is important, and it is, and if training in doctrine is important, and it is, then supporting those who are training in doctrine is also important. And I wish I could express how much we appreciate the fact that you do that. You do that. But there are still students out there, and and you wouldn't have any idea who they are, who are in need of support, both prayer and financially, for training in doctrine. And if if the Lord lays on your heart to uh, give more support to those students, you can let Pastor Van know, and he can get in contact with the powers that be at the school. Doctrine matters. No right before you can do right. God has provided us the means to do right and be pleasing to Him. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for what it says. And we are convicted by your word that you uh, gave to us this morning how our behavior should be in line with our doctrine, what we know. And Lord, those of us who are in positions to know more, we know that we will be held accountable. And I pray that you would give us the boldness and the courage to live lives pleasing to you, live according to what we know to do is right and good before you. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior, who not only died on the cross for our sins, but who has enabled us to live the Christian life. We pray in his name. Amen.